0: I want you to jump backwards for just a moment to the very end of John chapter 6. If you're using a pew Bible, I think it's in the neighborhood of 1057-1058 in your pew Bible. But before we get there, I have a plethora of announcements that I'd like to make. Uh, A lot is obviously happening in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, and we are excited about these events that are unfolding. Here are four events you need to be aware of. Today is the last day for our 4th and 5th grade students to sign up for SuperStart. It is March 1st and 2nd, and I'm just very excited about the number of adults that have stepped forward and volunteered to be a part of this weekend, but we want as many 4th and 5th grade students to go as possible, so get them signed up today. Baptism class, Ivy Courts from our congregation is going to be offering a baptism class based on a a curriculum uh, on baptism that, that I believe is really excellent it's going to take place beginning February 17 during the Bible School Hour for four weeks. If you would like an info packet on that, they're at the Welcome Center. They're available in our children's programming area. We are asking each parent, grandparent, guardian, whoever brings the child to church, to just, um, to, to in essence, give their permission for their child to go through this study. And if you have more information about that, you can give me a call. But that will start three weeks from today. CIY believe will take place once again this year in Anderson, Indiana, and it's for our junior high students, and it's April 12, 13, and 14, and we have announced our junior high mission trip this summer is going to be July 15 to 20 in Cincinnati. We're staying again at Xavier University. It's with CIY once again. It was a great week last year. We're looking forward to another great week this year. In your bulletin, there are several announcements I need to call attention to. Ladies' Escape is this Saturday from 9 to 11, and today is the final day to sign up. There's a sign-up table in the foyer, so be sure to sign up. The Change for Life campaign to help the Crisis Pregnancy Center, the New Life Pregnancy Center in Decatur, is ongoing. If you did not get a baby bottle last week, please grab one this week. Fill it up with your spare change, or if you want to, you can put a $100 bill in there. They would take that, but it is a great opportunity to support a great parachurch organization that's on the front lines of the pro-life movement doing an excellent, excellent job. The Tuesday Morning Ladies Bible Study resumes this week, and Joyce Trumbull is going to be teaching. The, the study is entitled Receiving God's Goodness, and if you're uh, available Tuesday mornings and you're a woman, you are invited and you will be blessed by this Bible study couple updates related to today as Kent mentioned earlier I know we had some people come in late all evening programming is canceled due to the impending ice storm and I say that with a smile because we have no idea what's going to happen quite honestly but uh, we'd rather be safe than sorry I know some people they don't like that and you know I don't really apologize we're trying to 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 do the right thing and be as safe as possible if that really bothers you go talk to Kent he would love to hear your uh, complaint about that And one more thing related to today: Our high school students are on a ski trip with a couple other youth groups up in the Wisconsin Dells area, and they had planned to be home between 10 and 11 o'clock tonight. Due to the weather that is hitting Wisconsin as we speak, they're going to leave around noon today, so they will be home much earlier than that. But you need to keep them in prayer. Um, Not really sure what what's going to happen with that, and they probably won't be able to go very fast. But we're going to pray the Lord's blessings on them, and they will be home much earlier, probably in the six to seven range. Wow, that's a lot of announcements, isn't it? Aren't you glad you're a part of a church that has a lot of things happening beyond Sunday morning? I'm excited to to share these announcements every week, and if they annoy you, don't be annoyed. Be excited that a lot of good things are happening in the way of ministry at your church. We are in the middle of Jesus the Great I Am series. We launched into this two weeks ago with an overview, and last week we looked at John chapter 6 where Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And today and next Sunday is kind of a two-part sermon series within a nine-week sermon series. Jesus says in John 8 and in John chapter 9, I am the light of the world. Last week, John chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And the big idea uh, that, that I wanted you to take from John chapter 6 was that Jesus is the life source for those following after him. And for time's sake last week, I didn't share this with you, but I want to just read a couple verses of scripture at the end of John chapter 6 that I think really reinforced this teaching of Jesus. In, in verse 53, he says, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh." of the son of man and drink his blood you have no life in me whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and i will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is real food my blood is real drink whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and i in him and if you were a stranger coming off the street and you heard that passage of scripture read you would think what is wrong with these people what what is wrong with jesus that's crazy that's cannibalism that, that's gross Of course, we did that this morning when we took communion. Not literally his flesh, not literally his blood, but when you took that little tiny wafer and when you drank just that little bit of Welch's grape juice, you were remembering that Jesus is the bread of life. You were remembering that Jesus is the life source for those following after him. If you're reading through the, the Gospel of John, John chapters 7, 8, and 9, the context is the Jewish feast of tabernacles. And one of the things that we don't do a great job of around here is really teaching a lot of the Old Testament history as it pertained to first century life when Jesus came and ministered. And I was reading this week just an excellent book by John Stott, and I was captivated by this feast, this annual feast that took place, the Feast of the Tabernacles. It was an annual party that lasted eight days. And think about that. Think about an eight-day party. Many of us are going to go to Super Bowl parties next week. Our high schoolers and junior hires are going to have a Super Bowl party here. And I think I just broke the law. I don't even think we can call it a Super Bowl party because the NFL has a trademark on that. But we're going to call it Super Bowl party anyway and see what happens. But it's going to be a three, three three-and-a-half, four-hour party. This is an eight Day party celebrating not only harvest but also remembering the wilderness wanderings and the Lord's provision, remembering the journey in the wilderness for 40 years and how time and time and time again the Lord blessed them. And one of the ways that this played out was through several acted out rituals that served to remind the people of the Lord's power, of the Lord's provision and the Lord's rescue during precarious moments in their storied past. For instance, during this Feast of Tabernacles, imagine this, in the great city of Jerusalem, many people would erect kind of a booth on the roof of their home, and they would kind of do a homemade roof of tree branches to remind them that in their past, the Israelites had to live in very temporary shelters as they wandered through the wilderness. They would also be a part of daily marches around the city walls of Jerusalem. And this was an imitation, many of you will will click with this right away, of Israel's great victory over the city of Jericho as recorded in Joshua chapter 6. And early each morning during this this festival, this feast, for eight days, some priests would, would gather together and they would march to the Pool of Siloam. That will be important next week, the Pool of Siloam. And they took water from the Pool of Siloam and they would carry it to the west side of the temple court and they would pour that water into an altar there to remind the people... How throughout the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, God provided water, the most essential need that they had in many ways, physical need that they had, and God provided water over and over again during the very, very long journey to Canaan. If I were to try to summarize what was taking place during this Feast of Tabernacles, I would call it this, it was History 101. So if if you were from Jerusalem or if you were a visitor to the city of Jerusalem and you didn't know a lot about Israel's past, you could just come and be a part of this feast. And as you would see the people marching around the city, you might tell your children, see, this reminds us of Joshua chapter 6. In the defeat of the great city of Jericho, the walls came tumbling down. Or when they'd see the priest carrying the water, it would remind them of a time during the wilderness wanderings. When the people were parched to the point of death, and the Lord provided water. History 101. Well, I think sometimes it's easier to see Scripture than it is to hear it. So I have listed our primary text, John chapter 8, in your bulletin today. But right now what I would like to do is I would like to show you an account from the Gospel of John Of what took place, one artist's account of the woman caught in adultery. Let's watch this.
1: the next morning he went back to the temple. All the people gathered round him and he sat down and began to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman who had been caught committing adultery and they made her stand before them all.
0: Teacher! This woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. In our law, Moses commanded that such a woman must be stoned to death.
1: Now, what do you say? They said this to trap Jesus so that they could accuse him. But he bent over and wrote on the ground with his finger. As they stood there asking him questions, he straightened up. Whichever one of you has committed no sin may throw the first stone at her. Then he bent over again and wrote on the ground. When they heard this, they all left, one by one, the older ones first. was left alone with the woman still standing there. He straightened up. Where are they? Is there no one left to condemn you? No one, sir. Well, then, I do not condemn you either. Go, but do not sin again. Jesus spoke to the Pharisees again. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will have the light of life and will never walk in darkness.
0: Captivating, isn't it, to to see Scripture portrayed? Is that what Jesus looked like? I I don't know. I I don't know. But I love so much this account from John chapter 8 because it teaches us Important life lessons about sin. And on the back of your your handout, if you want to fill this out, five lessons that I want us to learn from from John chapter 8, this this account of this woman caught in adultery. And Number one is this, sin is embarrassing. Sin is embarrassing. I want you to think of our our court system for just a moment. Let's say that I were charged with a a fairly serious crime and I were sent into a pretrial hearing. It's never happened to me, praise the Lord. But if it were to happen, one of the things that would unfold at some point early in the proceedings is the charges against me would be read aloud. Imagine how that, that would feel. The pain, the sting, the, the embarrassment. I wouldn't want to turn around and, and look at anybody. I would hope that J.D. Harold wasn't working that day or Clarine Arnold wasn't working that day. I wouldn't want to see anybody because I would be embarrassed. Just like that, sin, it's embarrassing. Think of yourself right now. How would you feel if next Sunday morning, instead of beginning my sermon not from John chapter 9, I just called one of you out, said come up on stage, and I started to share with the entire congregation sin in your life that I had learned of. How How many of you would be excited about that? Any takers? Be your last Sunday at First Christian Church, wouldn't it? Because sin is embarrassing. But guess what? That is exactly what's playing out here. This woman, she's been caught in the very act of adultery. It doesn't take a lot of imagination to figure out what has played out here. And she has been brought to the temple courts, and her sin has been announced for anyone and everyone. To hear. Now, we talked earlier about how during this Feast of the Tabernacles, John chapters 7, 8, and 9, it's History 101 week. Well, our Pharisees here are relying on a little bit of their history, the law of Moses. They announced to Jesus that according to the law of Moses, she must be stoned to death. And if you want to reference on that, Leviticus 20 and Deuteronomy 22, they do reference the fact that adultery was a big deal. You could go to Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5 and find that adultery was one of the Ten Commandments. It was a big deal. And so the history lesson continues But in this entire context, we see, first and foremost, sin is absolutely embarrassing. Secondly, though, we see that sin is self-indicting. It's self-indicting. See, for me, the really awful part of this account from John chapter 8 involves the reality that this woman's accusers were even more dirty. They were even more worthless. They were even more slimy than the pawn. ...of their nefarious plan. You may be saying, what? I I saw that the guy had the the beard going and the hat. I mean, he had to be a religious leader of the day, didn't he? He had to be an expert in the law, didn't he? He knew Deuteronomy 22. He knew Leviticus chapter 20. Weren't they simply doing their religious duty, exposing sin in this one of the big ten sins? Simply talking about the consequences? Well, the answer to that is no, not really. See, these leaders are actually using religion. They're actually using the law of Moses to bring harm to someone. And the really sad part for me is that this woman caught in adultery, she's not even their mark. She's not even their target. They're going full bore after Jesus. And see, it's a trap. They say, Jesus, we caught this woman in the very act of adultery. The law of Moses says, we must stone her to death. What say you? And Jesus is in a dilemma. If Jesus says, let her go, what will they say? They'll say, you're soft on the law of Moses. You claim to be this great teacher, and you go against the very law of Moses. But if he says, you're right, to death with her, let's pick up a stone. Let's stone her to death right now. Everything that Jesus has been about in the first seven chapters of the Gospel of John is shot. The love, the compassion is gone. So I can see their smugness 2,000 years later. I can read it between the lines of the pages in our Bible. They think they've got Jesus. One more thing about these Pharisees. See, they don't even really get the law of Moses correct. See, first of all, if you were to go to Leviticus 20, verse 10, or Deuteronomy 22, verse 22, you would find that an, an adulterous is condemned to death, but there's no prescription for how an adulteress should be put to death unless she is an engaged woman who doesn't scream for help. Then stoning is prescribed. So, so they're kind of adding to the law. But there's another element that just adds their hypocrisy. If you go to Leviticus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 22, it's not only the woman that is being put to death, but guess who else? The man. See, the last time I checked... It takes two to commit adultery. And they're only after the woman. They're not even having integrity with the law of Moses. And through it all, Jesus can see through them. See, sin is self-indicting. When we get too puffed up religiously, when we begin to think too highly of ourselves, we find ourselves self-indicted number three we are all sinners falling miserably short of the mark if you don't see anything else in john chapter 8 surely you see that now before i go to jesus i want to share with you some pauline teaching that's a big word to basically say some of the things that the apostle paul had to say about sin from the book of romans in romans three ten, he says that no one is righteous not even one And just a few verses later, 3.23, he says, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. So what does Jesus do as he is trapped? What is Jesus' prescription? What is his answer? Well, he writes on the ground. We have no idea, by the way, what he's writing on the ground. We don't know. We could speculate. We won't. But he stands up and his answer is brilliant. He says, He who is without sin, you pick up a stone and throw first. If you've got it all together, if you are without sin, if your life is perfect, then I give you permission to kill this woman. Now when you hear that, when you read John chapter 8, do you read it and say, wow, I'm sure glad I'm not like her. I'm sure glad I don't do things like her. Or do you read John chapter 8 and say, wow, I'm sure glad Jesus was Jesus. Because otherwise, this woman would have been in a huge bind. And for that matter, I would be in a huge bind. And you would be in a huge bind as well. We're all sinners. We all fall miserably short of the mark number four god wants to save us and for that matter everyone from our sin sin's a big deal sin leads to death but our god wants to save you me and everyone else from the power of sin from the sting of death from the consequences of sin Again before we go back to Jesus, let me share some, some more Pauline teaching from the book of 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 15 says, "This is a trustworthy saying. It deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst." This is the apostle Paul, greatest missionary ever, legend of all legends, and he's saying, "I'm the worst sinner ever." And Jesus Christ came to save me. A little bit further, in 1 Timothy 2, verses 3 and 4, we find this teaching. This is good, pleases God the Savior, who wants all men, all humans, to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Big idea, God wants everyone to be saved. I want you to think for just a moment of that person in your life that is not a Christ follower. The person in your life that doesn't know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. God your father wants them to be saved. God your father wants them to know the good news of Jesus Christ. I just challenge you that person that came to mind, maybe it's multiple people. Maybe it's a relative, maybe it's a neighbor, maybe it's a coworker. Pray for them today and tomorrow and every day this week. And begin to pray to the Lord for opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ. I love what Jesus does with this, with this sinner. I mean, she's obviously a sinner. She's an adulterer. She's committed one of the big ten sins. And Jesus does three things. First, he says, where are your accusers? And they are long gone. One by one, beginning with the oldest, they've walked away because we're all sinners. They can't pick up a stone and throw it because they're sinners as well. So Jesus simply asks the question, where are your accusers? And she looks around and she probably goes, they've walked on. They're gone. Next, Jesus offers grace. He says, they're not going to throw the stone. I'm not throwing the stone either. I don't condemn you either. Jesus had every opportunity and every right, right hand, right there, to accuse her. To heap righteous indignation on her head. Because he was without sin. He'd never committed adultery. He'd never committed any sin. He could have really given her the religious business right then and there. But he says, I, I'm not going to. I'm going to love you. I'm going to offer you grace. But don't miss the, the third statement of Jesus. I call this very aggressive advice. You might call it a command. He says, go and leave your life of sin. The movie said, sin no more. Don't sin again. See, Jesus offered grace, but he followed it up with truth. And that leads us to our our fifth and final lesson of the morning. And here it is. Christ's death is big enough to cover my sin and your sin. If we were to try to write down all of the sins that, that we have committed as a corporate body just in 2013, just in 27 days, we'd need a lot of paper, wouldn't we? Let's be honest this morning. I mean, let's just be really transparent this morning. We'd need a lot of paper. Because we're sinners. You're, you're a sinner. I'm a sinner. We, we've missed the mark. We fall short of the mark. But Christ's death is big enough to cover all of our sins that have been committed this year. That Christ's death is big enough to cover all of our sins that have been committed in all of our lifetimes. Because as we've learned in our Sunday school class, studying through the book of Hebrews... Jesus Christ's death was a one-time-for-all-time sacrifice for all of our sins. Back to Paul, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Sin is ugly. Sin is disgusting. Sin leads to separation from the Lord. But God provided a way out. Praise the Lord. And if I were to give you a picture this morning of what the bondage of sin looks like, uncontrolled sin, out of control sin, I would call it spiritual darkness. That's what I would call the bondage of sin. If you know someone in your life and they are making an absolute disaster of their life and Jesus is not Lord of their life and they're not trying to do anything about the disaster that is their life, that's a spiritual darkness darkness. And I find it ironic that the very next teaching John records from the gospel of John is verse 12, Jesus saying, I am the light of the world. I don't think it's an accident. I think John is trying to help us see the difference between spiritual darkness that that sin controls, and Jesus Christ, hope for the world, the light of the world. Let's look at that contrast. The darkness that destroys versus the light that leads to life. I walk my dog every morning. You know that. You're tired of the dog walking stories. I'm not even going to tell you a dog walking story, although I have three or four I could share. But, but one thing that, that I really don't enjoy is the 5.30 a.m. dog walks on Sunday mornings. And I'm just not a big fan of waking up at 525. I'm not a big fan when it's 26 degrees like it is today of getting out, although praise the Lord, no freezing rain. But what I probably like the least about the 530 a.m. dog walks is that when the moon is not illuminated, it's pretty dark, let me tell you. And my dog is a big baby, and I'm kind of a big baby. And every little rustle that you hear, you wonder, are there coyotes lurking? Is there danger around the corner? And there's one particular area on our walk near the park that has always been just unbelievably dark. You just couldn't see anything. I about stepped on a possum one morning because I just couldn't see it. But my little village of Chestnut did something for me about two months ago. They erected this huge, enormous street light. And man, it is the brightest street light that I have ever encountered in my life. It must have one of those halogen bulbs or something. Because now when I turn that corner and I start heading through the valley of darkness, guess what? That light makes all the difference. In the world. And my, my chest is puffed out, my dog's not afraid. We are good to go. That's the difference light makes. John taught us that at the very beginning of John chapter 1. Let's read verses 4 and 5. John 1, verses 4 and 5. Introductory teaching about Jesus. In him was life, and that life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. And so as I conclude part one of our sermon series, it's a two-part on I am the light of the world, I leave you with a question, not a statement, to cook on this week. And here it is. Can you see the light? Can you see the light? Let's pray. God, thank you for today. And thank you for the hope your son Jesus brings, Jesus Christ, the light of the world. And sin is awful, but Jesus Christ, because he became that one-time-for-all-time sacrifice, gives us hope, gives us assurance, gives us life, brings light. And because of that, we say praise the Lord. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. It is invitation time, as it is every Sunday here at our church. And if you've never connected with the light,